0: Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to There's No Business Like. Hello, Katie. (laughs) Hey, Josh, how's it going? Great.
2: Josh from Marion, Illinois here.
1: (laughs) Yep, I'm here with my friend Josh (laughs) and I'm here with my friend Brian. Hey, Katie. Where are you from, Brian?
3: Some days I don't know. (laughs)
1: Well, glad
3: to have you here. Thanks, Katie. I just remembered where I am. I'm in my office in (laughs) Kutztown, Pennsylvania.
1: Kevin.
4: Uh, Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts, uh, splitting the border between Iowa and
1: Illinois. And here with my best gal pal, Danielle. Hey, it's Danielle. I am
0: from the Alden in McLean, Virginia.
1: Today's interview is with a friend of mine, Mina Malik. I was so excited to have this conversation with her and we're going to dive in in a moment. But before that, I wanted to ask you all about your most transformative experience with either school programming or or arts education programming, a moment maybe that really struck you and helped push you further in your work as a presenter?
0: Yeah, Katie. So I started my career at um, the Wolf Trap Institute for Early Learning Through the Arts. And that program specifically does residencies um, with very young children, uh, babies through kindergarten while I was there. They go up to first grade now. And I can't tell you how many transformational experiences I saw and heard about between students and teachers alike and how those programs even at times um, affected families. Um, But one of the most interesting, as a presenter, arts and education opportunities that I've been able to witness is our year, well, our school year long uh, teen improv program. And we Cast that program in September. It at most is like twelve students, and they commit to coming to the center twice a week to do two hours of improv training. And they perform multiple times a year. Community spaces. They do workshops, and we pay them every time they perform. And it's this huge commitment that they make, um, and they just have to really love the process and love improv. But to see like beginning of the year to end of the year, and year to year, the amount of growth and change in confidence and like confidence in themselves that we see in the participants is incredible.
4: Honestly, I think it's really hard to sort of narrow down one story because I sit here and I think about I mean just like hundreds of, of examples of of you know being able to like witness the power of like experiencing the arts. Kevin, we don't have time for hundreds of them. Can you just pick one? <laughs> <laughs> How about seven? Can we do seven real quick? <laughs> one, uh, one, uh,
0: one for every ooh. one for every quad city. Okay. Perfect.
4: Perfect. Uh, well, and that's the thing. Like I, I think that really what I think about in, in arts education is similarly to what Danielle talked about is we have a, a program here, at quad city arts called the Metro arts youth apprenticeship program. And so it's a five week program that these students are paid to create art. Some is mural painting. Some is graphic design film. Um, or sometimes improv comedy. <clears throat> but what we've seen is that these students who are, you know, under the tutelage of an elite artist are paid to create their art, but then they go on to do that in college. Or, you know, a couple of them are having their own gallery openings right now, you know, as as young adults. And so seeing that growth year over year is just really impressive. So mine is, mine's
2: somewhat generic in that i love just watching the kids come in the door to start um so many of them have not been into the space and the lobby is this big grand space with a big like 18 foot chandelier and they are just in awe of that extravagance as soon as they walk in and then before every student show i get on stage and i talk about you know the expectations when you're in a theater and and when you applaud and when you cheer and just getting those basics in there and watching the kids just soak it in. On a much deeper level, um, we really try to focus on a lot of representation within our student programming. The community in Marion and in Southern Illinois in general is about 93, 94% white. And so representation matters all that much more because of the percentages in the community. And so watching those kids see performers that are people of color and and perform uh, things that are relevant to those communities is so important for us.
3: Just like all of you guys, I've had a program for schools as well, K-12, through called Promoting the Love of Arts and Youth, an acronym P.L.A.Y. I mean, there's so many, but one that sticks out in my mind that, that touched me the most, we brought up a group from Colombia called Rio Mira, and they performed uh, their outreach activity we brought them to a local middle school and the principal has a great relationship with us and and let the whole middle school come to experience this program it it was fully in spanish and they had like handmade instruments and all kinds of awesome things that uh, they use traditional kind of marimba type instruments it's based in that but it was very contemporary and hip and and modern music that they created I didn't know this at the presentation, but shortly afterwards, the principal called me up and said, We just experienced a miracle and we want to experience we want to share it with you. You know, that group you brought was amazing. There was one student in particular that had just moved up from Columbia, had just joined the school uh, like a couple months ago, and had been struggling, was in deep depression, would not talk to anybody, was just really struggling in every way, and they were very concerned about him. During the concert, he was smiling the first time they ever saw him smile and he's he was up dancing and showing the people around his students around him you know and and they were all like laughing and dancing together and having fun and he's just come out of his shell like instantly just from that one performative experience and and i was just moved by that and i checked up with him about the end of the school year um, because they had another we had another engagement with them and he said he the attitudes not changed like he's been so involved and so engaged in school Ever since. And it never, like, he never sunk back down into that depression. He loves talking about his former home in Columbia and some of the traditions that they had there that they don't have here. And the students that are around him from this area love learning about it. And so it's just really helped him gain friends. And just it's been a wonderful experience all around. And just gives me chills every time I, I think about that. I love that, Brian. That's
4: incredible.
1: Yeah, that's really, really special. Yeah. Um, I would say beyond the programming, school matinee programming, education programming we do here at the center. Early on in my career, I did a lot of teaching, youth theater um, education teaching, and in particular, I taught classes for the youth theater program at the Old Town Playhouse, which is the local community theater up in Traverse City, Michigan. And I would teach musical theater dance for eight to thirteen year olds, which is one of my favorite age groups to work with because they are like so not sure of their bodies and like their place in the world, and do I want to do this? And like my mom's making me. And like, I mean,
2: that sounds a lot like me now, but. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But to see um, kids grow uh, so much in themselves through the course of a class like that is really something special. And I remember in particular one young woman who came in um, at 10 or 11 years old and she was so scared. She did not really want to be there like she wanted to be, but didn't really want to be and was just had no confidence in herself at all. And by the end of the six week class, like was a really completely different child. And the next season she came and auditioned for shows and was in a production of Robin Hood that I was stage managing. And just to see her transformation through these arts education classes that she was taking at the theater um, has really stuck with me. And I think just shows the power of what we do to not only impact whole classes of students, but one individual student kind of like what Brian was just talking about and i i really hold on to that a lot um in terms of like the impact i can make as an individual as well as the impact that like our programming can collectively have on kids um in our communities so well, thank you all for sharing. Um, it's related to my very wide-ranging conversation that we're going to hear here just in a moment with Mina. Um, wanted to make a note that she uses two acronyms during the course of the interview that I just wanted to define for everyone. Um, she uses POC, which stands for Person of Color, and API, which stands for Asian Pacific Islander. Um, so I just want to make sure everyone had that terminology before we launch in. And hope you enjoy my conversation with Mina Malik.
5: Hello, I'm Mina Malik. I'm an arts consultant, facilitator, conflict mediator, and a musician. I'm also a mother, a partner, uh, an immigrant to this land. I'm a daughter. I'm a healer. All those things.
1: Well, Mina, welcome so much to the, the There's No Business Like podcast. I'm so excited to have you as our guest today. Um, So you and I met five years ago, believe it or not, in 2018. We were both participants in APAP's Emerging Leaders Institute program. It really seems nearly impossible that that was five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it was such a great experience. And I have honestly had the joy of watching your career change and grow like through social media and keeping in touch a little bit Um, I'm I'm really honored to have you as a guest on the pod today. Thank you. So, I would love to just dive in right away to your art's origin story. So, you mentioned all of the things that you are and all the things that you do as a part of this industry. So, how did you get started? Where did your love of the arts come from and how did you get to where you are today? I was
5: exposed to art by my parents. My dad from he's from India originally and he wanted to be a singer in India, from my mom, who's Japanese, was from that era of like the Beatles and such. So she listened to a lot of that and exposed me to those, took me to concerts. I, growing up in Japan, karaoke, or we say karaoke in Japan, is a big thing. And I think it's hard for people to grasp how how big it is. Like it's something that my friends and I will go do on a weekend for four mm-hmm. hours we'll go to a car- karaoke like place which is like a room and you order food and you just sing you sing for like four hours and like serious like we we will learn the the songs, you know, practice ahead of time before you go to karaoke, you learn harmonies. I mean, like this is serious. Sometimes wow. you do the song like multiple times to get it right. I don't know why it has to be that intense, but it was really intense. To to look back on it, I feel like I learned a lot from like the practice of like learning songs by listening to it over and over to be able to hear the harmonies and differentiate um and then to practice it over and over. So there were those kind of like fun things that ended up being like an education for me um and then I fell in love with um choir in high school and so I participated a lot in that um and I got all the solos and I started to realize that maybe I have something unique um that I didn't have before I didn't notice before Mm -hmm. and then I ended up pursuing that as my career one of the thing that was really crucial for me was that in um Here you call it middle school. Um, I was bullied at school. I had lost a lot of confidence around, you know, my myself and my Mm -hmm. kind of grounding. And also I was a mixed race child growing up in Japan. And I consider myself Japanese, but I was never really accepted into the culture. And that kind of messed up my sense of like groundedness within me. I think deep within it was there, but I like so much of the narrative or the messaging was like, I don't belong, I don't fit in. And so until high school, until I found my like physical voice, my confidence was really shaky. Mm -hmm. And the finding the physical voice, something unique that I had, that I could express myself and be heard and be seen. It was actually quite, revolutionary for me. And it really supported me in building my confidence. Not because like people were like, oh, you're so good. But it was something deeper than that, that like music can express how I'm feeling. I can be seen fully as who I am without, you know, these like outside, like my skin yeah. color or my my body structure that's different, that doesn't fit in. Music for me was a really important part of discovering my identity. So that's kind of how I moved into music.
1: I love how powerful that was for you, how meaningful it is. And I feel like you have continued to build on that meaning uh, throughout the rest of your career. So, Mina, you mentioned that you made music your career after school. So what did that look like for you? After I did
5: my undergraduate in vocal performance, I applied to two grad schools and I got in thankfully. (laughs) So I went to uh, the New England Conservatory in Boston. So I moved. At that point, I was in California for four years. And then I came to Boston. Um, I did my master's there. And then I just kind of stayed to pursue my career there. I did pursue a singing career. But at the same time, because I was an immigrant, um, I couldn't stay in the country unless I had a visa of some sort. Um, So after you, you know, typically immigrant students, once you graduate, you get one year of optional practical training where you have to, um, you can do work within your study, like field of study. And then basically within a year, you have to find an organization that will sponsor you to get a visa, which is kind of impossible. That's when I discovered arts administration. Thankfully, I was hired at New England Conservatory Prep School to uh, work as a, I think I was a coordinator feels like a long time ago, Uh, (laughs) there. uh, It was for prep school and continuing ed. So I was there for several years and they sponsored my my visa, which I was really thankful for. I realized I really enjoyed kind of being a bridge between artists and administrators and found that I had skill sets that were valuable. Following that, I pursued another master's in arts administration at Boston University. So I was doing that while I worked at a think a Japanese bakery first as an accountant, <laughs> all these interesting things that I did. Um, I also worked at a chamber orchestra first as a operations person and then moving into general manager. Wow. And meanwhile, I met my life partner and we got married and uh, we together applied for the green card and we eventually got it, which was Great, but it took many years of lots of different types of visas and statuses. So while I was performing, I was doing the arts admin degree and working arts admin. I did, though, eventually find
1: that the opera field was not for me. And why would you... How did you come to that conclusion? What was, what about it was like not the right fit? Well,
5: simply said, it's very racist. It was a racist field. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. And it's still changing
5: very slowly, I would say. There are a lot of people who are trying to change it. And I really admire that. And I, I am working in different ways to support that work now. But, you know, being in the field particularly those days because it was way before you know we have now we have language I feel like that we can use to talk about this like especially after the like during the pandemic and after that with the racial reckoning I'm using Uh air quotations that has happened I think people have a lot more knowledge and vocabulary and ways of talking about this but at the time I don't think people had much of an awareness other than the people who were actually experiencing the discrimination. Right. And so there were things said that now I would, I would speak up, but I just didn't know. I thought that was just normal of Mm -hmm. things like, oh, you sound really great, but I can't hire you because you're Asian or, you know, that kind of thing that is problematic, like highly problematic. And some of it is not explicit, right? It's more like the types of roles that I tend to get are limited to certain stereotypes or things that are said like oh your English is very good or you know that's those kind of Comments. So microaggressions.
1: Yeah, microaggressions. Yeah.
5: As I was performing, you know, all the repertoire that I was performing, most of them were kind of mainstream opera canon, were mostly written by old white European men. <laughs> and after performing those, and some some more new pieces too, that those were more interesting. I realized that you know none of these stories really represent who I am. Why am I doing this? You know, like, uh, am I performing because I want to really build my skill as a singer, which like I think classical operatic classical singing, it is years of practice to develop that skill. And I think that's really valuable, but just building skill without having purpose or intention didn't was not good enough for me. And so I started kind of wondering like, why did I start music in the first place? Like, Mm. is it for, performing on the stage, like watched by all these white people performing roles that have nothing to do with me. Yeah. So I kind of went through like some <laughs> mild midlife crisis. Well, it's not midlife, early life crisis, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and About meanwhile, meaning, meaning and mission, right? Yeah. Like it was just lacking for me. And and the conservatory training doesn't really focus on those either, right? They're like, sure. you go in your practice room, you practice, like build your skill, you'll just get good at it, and then you'll get hired. And you're like, well, that's not really true these days. And also, you know, hired to do what? Like just, you know, what is the purpose of of this career? Meanwhile, me, myself, and um, two other grads from New England Conservatory, we formed a trio called Voke Angelica Trio, and we performed international folk music, arranged for two voices, percussion and cello. Wow, I love that. Yeah, it was it was really cool. Um two of us were immigrants, so we brought our own, you know, music from our culture. So I brought Japanese folk songs, Indian folk songs that my dad sang to me. Um, Japanese lullabies that my mom sung to me and then the other member who now is my husband <laughs> um, is from Venezuela so he brought Venezuelan folk music and then the third member was another classmate from NEC uh, born and raised in the U.S. and that was really interesting to have you know deep conversations about what what folk music means to different cultures and a lot of times folk music is rooted in history of how people lived and what their life was about Because the songs are about maybe working on on the farm, working and tending the land, Mm -hmm. maybe putting your child to sleep, maybe cooking, uh, maybe about love, maybe about your hometown and missing it. They were just so organic, deeply touching for me, uh, particularly when somebody from a culture teaches me their folk music. And then I find, like, similarities to my culture, too, and, you know, find, like, unity, even from somebody that I just met. Also, how interesting folk music is in that, you know, classical music is, like, unless it's a specifically improvised piece, it's written out and you perform what's on the music. And folk music often is uh, something that's orally uh, shared with people each other. And the funny thing is, like, sometimes people can't remember the lyrics, so they'll change it, right? And then there's, like, always, (laughs) like, a variation or, like... Even melody, like my mom sang this uh, lullaby to me, and I always thought that it was in a minor key. and then I listened to it recently, and it's actually major, but she always started a little too low and she couldn't finish it, so she'll just kind of <laughs> you know swerve the melody. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting, and that's so beautiful. And you know it's like a living documentation of of history of people.
1: yeah, absolutely.
5: That really saved my soul to be part of that trio. We did mm-hmm. probably like thousands of school shows um, and we toured everywhere in the U.S. and also some abroad. And we have two albums out. We recently disbanded after 14 years of being together. It was really life-changing for me to be part of that because it kind of reminded me of why I do this. Wow, I went on a tangent there.
1: No, that's wonderful. I, <laughs> oh, man, to hearing artists talk about their work is actually one of my favorite things to do here on the pod is like actually dig into where the music or the art, the theater, the dance comes from and what the meaning behind it is. And I think it is great for administrators to actually hear directly from artists, like what those pieces and parts are, and um, because we're so in the weeds about the booking and the details and the logistics and how are we going to market this? But sometimes... Actual art of it gets lost.
5: It's true. A lot of arts organizations don't have art in their, like part of their business. <laughs> I often <also> find, too.
1: <laughs> did you find, um, especially you said you did, you know, thousands of school shows, um, US and you toured abroad. What was the reaction to this music that you were presenting? Because it's pretty different from what school kids in the US are going to get on a regular basis. So, what was their reaction and how did you build out a successful? touring program for students. Yeah,
5: we developed a couple of programs. One that was really popular was called Passages. And it went through the different continents of the world. And we did songs from different countries. um, And it was kind of the path of migration of humans that we kind of followed and so had the kids tell us what the order is and it was kind of a quiz quiz show interactive format cool um so they learned obviously geography but they also learned some rhythms from different cultures they learned a couple of different words or languages so we'll add in a couple of you know facts or tidbits that will be incorporated into the program i mean it has to be like a really fast-paced program to to keep the attention of kids so we like we built this like really tightly and it's like the dialogue's moving and you know questions are there and then then they dance and then they clap and so it was very active program the reactions that we got from students is that regardless of whether they understand the words they vibe with good music if they hear good music they know it like a lot some of the songs that were really popular were one song called I can't remember, but it was a Haitian song that we sang that was taught to us by a Haitian friend. and we learned it for the there was like a charity concert after the earthquake in Haiti, mm-hmm. and that became kind of a a main song that we did in the program. They don't understand the lyrics and they loved it. They will clap, they'll sing along. And the other part is, you know, we'll do a pretty robust q and a. Uh, afterwards and that was pretty important to us to hear their reactions their questions I did get a lot of reactions a lot of kids coming to me where a lot of Asian kids will come to me and be like wow I never knew like we could be singers or performers Mm -hmm. like this was something I've never seen before and I was like okay wow representation (laughs) you know and same for my partner who's from Venezuela he did a lot of he brought the Venezuelan folk instrument. He, you know, teaches Spanish as part of the program, and and lots of kids resonated with his experience, and and just seeing him was a, a really big deal. Um, so I think kids had different types of reaction, but overall very positive to who we are, who, who we are, and also the music that we did.
1: I love that. And you never know, even if a student doesn't come up to you afterwards, you don't know what sort of impact you've had on them. And I think that's like as an administrator that does school matinee programming, that's one of the things I love most is that every kid that comes in is going to have some sort of connection point, some sort of reaction, whether it is in that moment or they're going to go home and think about it um, or talk to their family about it. And you just never know what that is going to bring out in the student. Okay, so you have this wonderful ensemble, you're touring around the world, touring around the country, but at the same time you were still doing admin, right? So (laughs) a common common story for artists is like you also have to do admin work at the same time to like keep you know keep food on the table um and you worked at new england foundation for the arts correct
5: correct after the chamber orchestra i moved to nefa into philanthropy
1: yeah so what was your role there and you know frankly what changes did you see in the philosophy of arts funding during your time um and would love to dig into a little bit of like what your opinions are in terms of arts funding today
5: yes let me turn my phone off um that's a big question. Um, okay. So yeah, I first started as a program coordinator for theater. Um, so I worked for the national theater project, which is a grant that supports device ensemble theater work, the creation of the work and the touring of the work. Um, in the eight years I was there in, at NIFA, I worked for the same programs uh, at just different positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I started as a part-time staff because as you said, like I was performing, um, and I didn't want a full-time job, um, but, but yeah, it was much more work than I expected, but that's okay. <laughs> I think that's very typical for part-time positions where it's yeah. really not part-time, but um, but I really liked it a lot. Like I, it was the first time working with device ensemble theater artists and ensembles. And that was a new area for me. Um, I mean, opera, I would think, I think it's part of theater, but in a very unique way. And Dubai's ensemble theater work is, particularly the ones that we supported, are created as an ensemble. And by ensemble, we defined it as like more than two people or two two or more people. So it's not like a big, you know, group of people. Mm-hmm. But it's more about the shared ownership that the artists feel in creating the work together and that the process of the creation is, is as important as the product itself. Mm. So product is of course important and that's what we're supporting the touring of, but the process of the creation of it and the discovery of what comes out from that, the iterative process, the the ideas around like shared leadership within that co-ownership, there's just so much nuance and intricacy in in that and I really enjoyed learning about it. One big thing that happened to me when I started at NIFA was that I met my life mentor and a dear friend, Kita Sullivan, who was my supervisor. She's amazing. She mentored me. I had in myself inherently that relationship is one of the most important things in creating change. Uh, Like it's not possible to create long-term sustainable change without having deep relationships with the people who are involved and engaged in that work. And then meeting Kita, it just deepened even more uh, because that's how she worked. And justice and equity was something that was like centered within her work in everything that she did. She was also the one that gave me the vocabulary around like identifying myself as a woman of color. Uh, because you know i immigrated from japan in japan i was just like a mixed race person like a foreigner (laughs) like that's how (laughs) they called me and then i came to the u.s and then it was like another culture shock right like i was like whoa what am i like how why are they treating me like this what is this i don't know what the language is and then kito's like you're a woman of color you should join woka the woman of Uh color in the arts i was like what is this new world? <laughs> and then I, I started, you know, joining in, learning about it. I was like, oh, yeah, this is exactly right. my experience. Like, mm-hmm. that's cool. I didn't know there was like a group of people that gathered around this identity. Right. Um, and that was really eye opening. I, I digress, but <laughs> it is important because I think in the relationship building with the artists, You know, I it's important to me that I show up as my full self and know my positionality in in the interaction with the artist, whether that's like a social identity that I bring or positional. Right. Because I am a funder, although I don't make the decisions to give them the money. We have panelists who do that. But I do hold a lot of power in this. There's hierarchy. And so I spent my eight years really working on dismantling that barrier between artists and funder as much as possible so that they can communicate to me when they need something. And then utilizing the power that we have as intermediary to talk to our funders to be like, look, right. this is what we're hearing. these are the shifts that they they need in order to live you know particularly during the pandemic. money yeah. for project creating project was really for some people it was not what they needed. you know they right. were like I need to pay rent. I, I lost all my gigs like I, I need money. And so it was a opportunity where we we had all this information. So we were able to go to our funder to be mm-hmm. like, can we shift some of the money to GenOps if that is the desire of the artists? Um, and right. they said yes. And so we wow. were able to make that change. Those are things that I found really important in the work that I did.
1: So then coming out of your work with NIFA, you actually decided to move into a consulting space and start your own business as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant, um, kind of really launching that fully full-time in, in early 2022. So how did you decide to make that switch? And what were the challenges you faced in starting your own business? So I, I don't call myself an
5: EDI consultant. I do say that I do anti-racism and anti-oppression. Mm-hmm. Not that I... I not because I disagree with equity, diversity, inclusion. It's right. just that those terms have been... Overused. ...sometimes, yeah. Over, overused
1: and lost all their meaning, perhaps.
5: Yeah, well, I don't think it's the overuse if it is really used for those actual... Like, if for the meanings of the terms. Like, really, that if the organizations really interrogate what those mean for them and actually are doing the work, that's different, but I think it has become like a checklist thing where people... Just kind of we do the EDI and we checked it off, so we're all good. Whereas, like, I think this is more like a way of living, way mm-hmm. way of life. Yeah, I do anti-racism, anti-oppression work, and within all the types of things I do, like consulting, facilitation, mediation, that is always the lens that I come from. Um, and the other one is uh, emergent strategy. Adrienne Murray Brown's emergent strategy has been a really a significant part of my philosophy and ways of being in relationship with people, to to land, to mm-hmm. everything that I do. I started doing some facilitation while I was at NIFA, I think I was invited by people to kind of facilitate or or present. And I was already doing some EDI work within NIFA. And I was very vocal within the organization around uh, bringing equity to structures and systems within the organization. Mm-hmm. I founded the BIPOC affinity group as well at NIFA. So I was doing a lot of internal work I had a lot of energy, so I put it into like the EDI efforts uh, at NEFA and also beyond. So I started doing a lot of like affinity work as well. So at different conferences, I'll like facilitate or present. So there's this initiative called the Beyond Orientalism uh, Forum which was started um, in New York. I got to know Emilia Cachapero, who was part of that initial programming. took place in different cities. She and I had talked about bringing this to Boston, so I ended up hosting that, and I gathered... API folks, art folks in Boston to hear from them, what are their needs, what, what's happening, what are the issues? And we did this uh, Beyond Orientalism forum in 2017, partnering with Emerson College. This was a forum to talk about lack of representation, misrepresentation of API folks in theater and media. And from there, we, a bunch of us co-founded the API Arts Network in Boston. So I started doing that kind of work as well. Meanwhile, facilitated at APAP, one of the pre-con, pre-conferences for the attendees with WOCA, Women of Mm -hmm. Color in the Arts, and I presented around white supremacy culture. So yeah, once I started doing that, more and more requests came in and like, can you be a panelist here? Can you do this? Maybe this is an area I pursue to see if I'm impactful or not. Right. I think in philanthropy, Being who I am and being in that particular position was really meaningful. It's representation. It was really meaningful. It was like one of the only departments that had two women of color running a program, which was a big deal. Very big. Very big deal. The way that Akita and I were working felt really radical. And that was really exciting. But in a bigger scheme... I just, I didn't know if I was making the level of impact that I wanted to make. And I was like, maybe I have to be outside to make Uh the impact. I don't know. Like I need to see. And I'm super risk averse. I didn't want to just like quit, (laughs) (laughs) start a job, you know. And so I started doing consulting on the side as I was working full time. Uh And it was during the pandemic too. So we were working like even more than before supporting artists. And my child was at home doing virtual school and I was doing consulting oh work. So I don't know why like that <laughs> happened that way. I think it was meant to happen that way. <laughs> yeah. And uh, to add to that, which is important, so I will share, I started like hardcore therapy uh, March of that, like when the pandemic started, like right at that time. And it was really to investigate healing from my intergenerational trauma that I was carrying. And I knew I, it was like, not just my trauma that I carry, like something beyond which was true. Sure. Um, and all those things were happening at the same time. And I think it's relevant because me getting to know my real self through therapy <laughs> helped clarify the the path that I wanted to go in mm-hmm. this field. I, I know art is important. It's not beyond important. Art is like just part of being human. Like we express, we, we are creative peoples. We are, we sing. We all have you know, so, uh, many of us have vocal cords, many of us have mechanisms where we can phonate and that's why we sing, we may move, we may dance, mm-hmm. we don't have to be professional, but we all have this, these mechanisms to express. So I think art is extremely important. I think it's a way of expressing, but it's also ways to support people in their path and journey of healing, which includes, you know, building empathy for each other, deepening your self-knowing, understanding the political situation that we're in, understanding where you place yourself. And like, I think art can do all of that and be a crucial part of shifting systems within our Mm -hmm. world. It was really important to me that I'm in my own knowing, at least on a journey of my own knowing to do this work responsibly. Um, because if I'm doing facilitation, consulting, and anti-racism, anti-oppression, I can't do that without knowing where I fit in, where I am positioned, power-wise, you know, within the structure that we are currently in, then be able to imagine what could be beyond this world. And so I was doing consulting. At one point, I was taking vacation days from NIFA to fit in the consulting gig. The demand was just so much that I I just didn't have time to rest and do anything. I was like, okay, maybe. This is the time, you know, in consultation with my team. And uh, I wanted to kind of leave ethically as well, um, so that I'm not leaving suddenly and leaving a lot of work for Mm -hmm. the rest of the people. Um, So I took my time and didn't rush through that transition period. I founded my my own business in January 2022. (laughs) And it was scary and also incredibly liberating to not be part of an organization. I'm my own
1: pathfinder. Yeah. (laughs) And I've been very lucky to have work Come to me during the pandemic, and and be you know and beyond up until this moment. I see you speaking all the time. You are constantly on panels. You're helping organize events. You're being in community and in space in many different ways, kind of across the industry. So, understanding kind of the components of your story you just shared with us, do you find that there is a tension between your personal and professional journeys, it really seems to me like you bring a lot of your personal experience and passion into your work. That's a lot of emotional labor. So do you find that there's a tension? Is there ever a moment where you say, can't do that right now? I have to take a step back. Or do you find that that is why you're so successful and people gravitate towards you and want to work with you? I make it kind of
5: a life mission to bring my whole self because I I feel like the whole time I was in nonprofit the whole time I was in conservatory even when I was in Japan I think I was playing roles to fit in as my partner says like wearing different hats everywhere and never my own hat or maybe no hat right that's maybe that's my full self since I founded my own business I can be my full self right? Like I I don't have to fake anything. If our values don't align with the client, I can always leave. I really enjoy being me <laughs> fully. So I do actively try to keep everything together and not show up as one part of me. Emotional labor is a whole nother thing for sure. I did a lot more emotional labor before when I was at organizations because Just- you know, I'm representing, like, for example, like at NIFA, I'm representing a very predominantly white institution as like one of the few POCs I was called on to, like, whenever there was like something that was related to my identity, like, oh, Amina, can, you, can we get your, right. you know, comment? And that's just, that's not just NIFA, like it's just organizations in general, Everywhere. right? That was exhausting to hold a lot of people's emotions in those kind of spaces was really tiring too.
1: So bouncing off of that, because you are well credentialed, you speak, a lot of times you're asked to to facilitate, you're doing this work professionally. What do you want other event organizers, conference organizers, facilitators to know when they're inviting people into space to either sit on panels or facilitate or have these sorts of conversations um, around equity, around anti-oppression, around anti-racism? We just talked about emotional labor that you go through. What do you want event organizers? Because I think we're like more conscious of it now, especially people like me, straight up white people, like we're more conscious of that. But it is still maybe a little awkward to <laughs> invite people in because we are aware of the emotional labor, don't want to inflict more harm, but also want to elevate, create space for conversation and and really dig in sometimes. Do you have advice or thoughts on how do you do that in an ethical and sensitive manner, when you do wanna create space to facilitate meaningful conversation, but you also don't wanna inflict harm on the guests that you're, you're asking to come into that space with you.
5: I think there are many directions that you can go to and go in, but I go back to relationship building. Meaningful conversations cannot happen if there is no level of understanding of where each person's values lie and where they come from and where their liberation practice is. Um, mm-hmm. to be, like for me, right? Like I, I don't know, I think it, it's really simple. Let's say you wanna invite an Asian person to talk about problematic operatic repertoire or something. <laughs> I mean, which it has happened. Most of the time I say no, cause it, it's very traumatic and triggering to me. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, the people that reach out, they don't have relationships with me. They're just like, sure. you do this work. We want you to talk, to share your perspective. And uh, But we don't have a relationship. I don't know where you stand. Like, what are you going to do with this information? What are you going to do after this, this panel? Like, what is this panel for? What is the purpose? Who is it for? You know, like, I don't know any of that. Where do you stand in, in like... Asian people's liberation in this country or the black people's or indigenous people's liberation in this country. Like, I don't know any of that. And I can't really sit on a panel and potentially being co-opted to their vision of something. And in some cases, there were situations where this was like a panel so that it's like, they do a panel so that they can do problematic work. So they're like, check, we did the panel. We talked about it so we can still do this. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to be part of that. But let's say it's an organization that's really... You know, tackling issues. Let's say they're like really looking at new work by API composers, and they want to really dissect why some works are problematic, and they want to bring in other types of work and elevate those voices. But they also want to see the historical perspective of why those were problematic, and the goal is that they want to change the mainstream canon for opera so that it's not Madame Butterfly that's always been done, or dot, or whatever these harmful, you know, representations of Asian women, not to be repeated, but let's change the the mainstream opera canon for API voices to this more modern version that really represents Asian American voices. If we can build a relationship through those conversations, Mm -hmm. and then the purpose is really clear that I'm contributing to that shared vision of a liberated future together, I would do it, you know, and I might be triggered because I have to rehash why things were harmful, but I know that there's like a, a bigger purpose there. Right. So I would do that.
1: What I take away from that is like gen uh, relationship building. I think that's the thing that we have found the most coming out of the last, you know, two, three years is like those relationships are key to everything that we're doing. Genuine interest and care on the side of a presenter or event organizer, but then also person being invited and having the option to evaluate and ask questions and say yes or say no. Yeah. Um, And that shouldn't that shouldn't be something that isn't an option.
5: The kind of accountability on both sides is really important that it's not just us sharing like the repeated stories of harm. Right. <laughs> for no reason <laughs> um, or just for the white audience to hear. But like the, there is accountability on their organization yeah. side that this is what we're going to do, um, yeah. I think, is really important, especially for kind of these kind of racialized conversations mm-hmm. that could be very harmful.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. I really appreciate it. Um so think about. Back to the start of your career, maybe when you're getting your master's degree in arts admin and you're starting your ensemble, what piece of advice would you give to yourself back then? Something you wish you had known then or a piece of advice you you would give to your younger self?
5: Don't be afraid to speak up and trust that you have something important, not important, something valuable to say. Like your perspective is unique. You're the only one who knows yourself and you're the you know, expert in your own lived experience and whatever thought that you have an opinion you have is informed from that experience. So it's some, the the thing that you can only bring, be courageous, be confident and speak up more. Cause I was definitely, I worried about what other people thought and I was mm-hmm. timid. I thought that I didn't have anything important to say. And so I, I held my, I'm, my words often in the beginning and I realized soon that that doesn't help anybody <laughs> at all, like including myself, but like just like anything, like if I want to make change, I need to speak up. I need to be courageous, even if it feels uncomfortable and scary to have the courage to say.
1: Great. You've been in the industry for a while. You've seen many changes. So what do you like most about working in the arts industry today? I'm inspired
5: by artist's creativity and flexibility. In this time, whether they're making work or not. Particularly during the pandemic, I was talking to many artists and many of the conversations were hard because a lot of their touring got cancelled. Even my partner too, he lost all his work. Mm. There was no support from the government. right? It was really hard to see the struggle, yet so many artists found ways to express or shift that energy somewhere different, even within their like parenting ways of parenting or doing virtual schooling or developing like a virtual, like my partner did like a virtual cello class that he started, which ended up being like a very global thing that is ongoing. That's where he kind of established his cello academy Wow! and determined that there were lots of young artists from Latin America that would like to come to study in the U.S., but they don't have English skills. So he's developing like an English language course for specifically for musicians that want to come to the U.S. Cool. Uh, so like, you know, things are born, like ideas are born from like the, the creativity and the energy cannot be contained from these artists the ways that they were just coming out from their scenes. (laughs) It was just like so inspiring, despite all the fatigue, despite all the exhaustion and, or physically being sick to, you know, all these things that have been happening. I'm really inspired by the artists and it's not just the content of the work which also are amazing, but just like the ways of creating work or ways of being with each other. There I think there's a lot to learn from that. And that keeps me going. The other thing that keeps me going in this field is my child. Like I, I have an eight-year-old son who is extremely artistic. He's musical, he paints, he draws, he makes sculptures, you know, his his thinking is just creative, which I think a lot of the kids are very creative. And I want to really cultivate that, and I, I see this like bright future in him, and like I want to make the art field and the industry equitable and more like easier for him to exist in as like, this multiracial kid who. Mm-hmm may pursue I, I don't know but if he if he does or if he doesn't i want the world to be better for the next generations and the next generation and the next generation <laughs> anyway, my my work is just part of you know this portion of my existence um and i know and trust that the future generations will keep moving that work forward young people inspire me as well
1: well that's a perfect note to end on mina thank you so much for spending so much time with me today i have so enjoyed our conversation thank you for Uh, bringing everything that you do and everything you are into this space with me. I truly appreciate it. And I honestly can't wait to see what you do next and the impact that you have on the industry. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
2: Katie, that was such a great interview. Thank you for bringing Mina into um, the podcast and, and bringing her perspective in because it's so unique. Um, One of the things that I found really unique about it was Her experience um, in Japan and then the United States and in Japan being someone that's uh, essentially they just refer to her as a foreigner the entire time, as opposed to whenever she moved to America, then finding who she was in America and the different experience in America. Um, And then uh, through her life mentor, learning the terminology around it and and that there are things like Woka and things like that that she can be a part of from there.
3: I also loved hearing how she took um, the fact that she didn't feel she was represented in any way in the classical and opera world and decided to merge up with two other people and and do this um, trio where she, the international folk trio that she was involved in. And they each brought in different parts, different cultures and merged them together that that did represent who they each were and created this new thing by doing that, by coming together. And, and I love stories like that. And I love, that kind of art because it's, it's coming from a genuine place.
0: It just so happens that this episode is being released in May of 2023. And I think it's really important to note that in the U S that's AAPI Heritage Month, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month, and listening to her stories of playing in the folk trio and, and doing um, Q and A's and talk back with students afterwards. I think that that's just an incredible reminder that, Representation matters, whether it's May or whether it's any other time of the year who we put on the stage really and truly matters to the people that are in the audience.
1: I wanted to make a note about the conversation we had around like language and vocabulary kind of sprinkled throughout the course of the of the interview, it's something I think a lot about in the work that I do in my community. And she makes a note that it's important to be able to put language to the experiences that you're having, your identities, your social position, um, where you stand in a hierarchy. And I thought that was a great thing to remind us about. And, you know, honestly, we have all been doing (laughs) a great deal of learning and recognizing vocabulary that we maybe didn't have before. Um, And I think it's important because you, to have language, because you can't identify a problem and you can't work to fix it or to engage with it unless you can identify it until you can say what it is, right. And be able to talk about it. I think it's important, an important part of, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion work that we are doing across the industry is being able to name the discrimination, um, the inequities that many people face. Um, if you can't do that, you can't work towards a solution.
4: Yeah. I like that. She refers to herself as an anti-racist and anti or anti-racism and anti-oppression facilitator, mostly because, I mean, diving into the DEI space, I mean, we, we're sort of having the same issues right now um, at, our, at our organization or when we talk with other funders about diversity, equity, and inclusion, because it's it's the definition of those words. And I do think that she's, she's spot on that they, it has been co-opted and it's been used as buzzwords. So you can say, oh, we're addressing diversity, e- equity, and inclusion, but it doesn't actually define what that means. And so For us, like I mean, we have tried to take the time here to figure out what what exactly does diversity on our board mean. Does what does diversity in our programming look like, or what does that mean? Because without it, it's it's an easy thing. Um, So I'll give an example without you know um, throwing anyone under under the bus here. But I was recently in a conversation with a funder. The question was, "What's diversity on your board like?" Like, well. What does that mean? Um, like what what when you say diversity, what are we talking about here? Because we're talking about you know women or people of color or the LGBTQ plus community like those are different answers. And so trying to define what that is within your organization, your community is important. So I like that as a facilitator, she's very clearly defined like what she's focusing on
1: well, and I appreciated Mina's um willingness to share some of you know her personal experiences with us because that is not always easy um and i appreciated the conversation about emotional labor and being very open and honest with that and that is something that as we move through these spaces and um, we do this work we have to be conscious of whether it's it's simply interfacing with an artist right and the piece of art that they're bringing to our stage or we're putting together a conference or some sort of um professional development maybe through our you know our presenters networks or whatever that looks like um I just appreciate her vulnerability and her willingness to share that and and speak so openly about that. Not only the emotional labor, but also mental health and therapy and counseling. Like that's something that I know is important to all of us and want to keep emphasizing um, open, having open and transparent conversations about that as well. So I just want to take a moment and thank Mina for her willingness to talk about that with us on the pod today.
4: Yeah. She also gave some really great examples of like, building that relationship. Um, because I think sometimes it's hard to approach somebody to have those conversations, but she said something in that, that really struck home. And it was, you know, what is the goal of this conversation? What is it going to be used for after the fact? Like, uh, so now, I mean, I feel much more comfortable when we are trying to have those conversations done. Like when I'm approaching somebody on the information I should come to them with instead of just being like, Hey, we want to have a conversation about this, you know, really hard topic. Um, and then, you know, because that conversation sounds like, yep, we're checking the box and now we can move on because we've solved racism. So,
2: so one thing that I, I found really interesting was her talking about when she was part of uh, the granting organization and that the importance for her of bringing her authentic self, even in that, to build the relationships and and knowing who she was and what her presence there was as someone representing the funder. And what that means within the relationship that she has for the funding itself. And so I found all of that really interesting and, and really eye-opening from a, a, a point of making sure that she's bringing her authentic self there and in every situation that she's in.
0: And I think, too, a lot of times when we have conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion um, or anti-oppression um, and anti-racism, a lot of the the questions that white people and people like us have at the end is, well, so what is it that I can do? I understand that the world is a bad place and it's been an even worse place for you or for somebody else, but what is it that I can do? And I think a lot of these conversations really come back to just being a good person. You know, if like Kevin was saying, if you want to ask somebody to come and to like bear their soul and their experience that they've been through, you better go into that conversation with a plan, with a whole program. And letting them know how much they're going to be paid to do that, not making them negotiate for it, and talking about the ways that you're going to make it more accessible, the ways that you're going to advertise it to the community that needs to hear it, the ways that you're going to help take care of the other people in the audience that may have experienced some of those things. Well, I'm
3: thinking about the the presenter who feels isolated and is is just entering this world of EDI and. Um, Isn't isn't aware and doesn't know like wants to do the right thing but doesn't know how to answer those questions how do how do they find out where do they turn to know how to do that without tokenizing and checking the boxes Um, and I think that's important for us to help you know in our positions of power and
2: whatnot to help bridge that gap referencing back to Danielle's interview with Dominic Moore Dunstan who talked about trauma mining that in asking people to have these conversations is a heavy, heavy ask because it is trauma mining. It's asking them to relive traumatic experience to to tell you where they've experienced trauma in their life and then explain it to you and explain why it's wrong. And then to have that followed up with, well, what can I do? After you've just asked them to do such an emotional thing. I mean, there's there's a lot of sensitivity to this.
0: So a couple of years ago, I was given the task of presenting something for Native Heritage Month. And that was something actually Native Heritage Month and LGBTQ plus Pride Month, both of which are things that I am not and truly felt incredibly out of place trying to pick and decide and figure out what that would be. And before I went and I talked to anyone I spent probably two days on the internet just trying to find resources to understand what are current discussions happening um, in, in those communities, what are things that have been done, what are resources that are already free and available to me, like podcasts are amazing, um, but there are also so many organizations that do want to get the information out so that when you do go and reach out to... Um, somebody that maybe you've heard on a podcast or you've seen um, in a panel that you have a background of knowledge already on why that topic could be painful. Like I definitely would not advertise a cold call on that because that's not, that's not good for anyone. Um, And I would say too, if, if, anybody does have questions about where that resource is, like, ask us if you're listening to this podcast, ask us. Can we put a few links in the show notes? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it up.
2: There's one that Danielle recommended early on in our podcasts called seeing white from seen on radio. Um, and it was I, I dove into it after her recommendation. And it is an eye opening look at seeing things through a different lens to where you can see how whiteness is applied to, to so many things. Um, as the default uh, and, and it just it's a great great podcast series that really opened my eyes to to general perception
3: I also wanted to um acknowledge like how she was talking about the creation of art and just the the process of the creation itself being as important as the prod the end product and um being someone who who is a hobbyist songwriter, I have to agree with that there's there's something we were talking about transformation before with youth and, and educational outreach and just the the process of creating, even if it's a hobby level, not a professional level, there's something transformational in that. And I know Josh can relate, really, you know, I'm sure doing your murals, the process of doing them is, is probably more important to you, I would guess, just having conversations with you than even the end product.
2: That's very true.
3: And I've talked about this um, in our holiday episode, but just uh showing up she she mentioned and I wrote this down showing up as your full self and that's something that I've only recently come into uh into existing and enjoying being my full self I related to her even though she was coming at it from a different lens you know that part of the conversation really struck me because it's something that is important that I've I've discovered and I think everybody should try to find their true self and not hide any of it like just be fully out there as yourself and it's amazing when you start accepting that yourself, how it just creates so many other positive things around you.
2: Well, and I'd, I'd like to add that that true self adapts and changes. I mean, you are not one static thing. Um, and and as your experience changes, you change and who you are changes. And And, and it's important to honor that as well.
1: Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. And there's no business like, I want to thank our guest again, Mina Malik for having a wonderful conversation with me. It was such a joy to sit down with her and I'm so excited to see Amina just expand her business and uh, her place in this industry as we move forward. So thanks to all my friends for joining us and we'll see you next time.
0: All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vano. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at NoBusinessLike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait. What was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is no business like dot com. Do I sound out bus I every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends.
1: So welcome, everybody, back to There's No Business Lake. Uh, we're
0: excited.
3: Thanks, Katie. I just remembered where I am.
0: Are you in your time machine? I, I wish. Did the time machine glitch?
3: I find myself in my office at Kutztown University.
0: All right. Well, welcome,
1: Brian. I'm so glad that you finally know where you are. Uh, oh, do we want to take that again? No,
3: nope. this is awesome. Okay.
1: Got it. One and uh, done. So. So, so excited. Do we look like people that, that rehearse things? No. We'll
3: do a retake, but it's going to cost you extra.
1: What kind of potato chips do you like? Do you perhaps like, I like potato chips? Sort of chips. like cookies
4: and chicken. <laughs> potato chips. Are they sponsoring
0: We ever get ads. It's My, just gonna, it's gonna be, be Michigan. Michigan
4: <laughs> Yes.
3: Michigan and food. We do talk a lot about fast food. <sighs>